Hello. Bienvenidos. So, uh, welcome back, everybody. This is the weirdest thing. I am Scotty Milder, one of your hosts. Yep, and I am Amelia Ampuero, one of your other hosts. And whether or not there are more than just the two of us, you all will never know. <laughs> That was like so mysterious that even I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine we just have like a whole uh, like coven of other people who are here with us just silently. Just sitting in like, like black chairs behind us with candles right. or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually kind of fits my story nicely. So. Fantastic. What a lead in. Um, but actually, before we dive in, do we want to give the announcements? Oh, yes, we should do a couple of announcements. Okay, so we are going to take next week off. I just, I actually remember this when we were talking about uh, scheduling for the other day, Scotty, because we had brought it up and I was like, no, I'll go ahead and talk about it later. And then I never did. So I guess now is the time to talk about it. So yeah. we're going to take next week off because my theater company, Duke City Repertory Theater, will be opening its first show in a year and a half. It's for in-person show woohoo! in a year and a half and opening week always tends to get a little hairy yeah. so for my own sanity and to maintain the quality <laughs> of the podcast uh we're gonna take next week off if you're interested and if you're in the albuquerque area and you're interested in coming to see this show you can find more information about it at www.dukecityrep.com Dot com. It's going to be very interesting, a little different from stuff that we've done in the past. It's going to be outdoors. So I'm like knocking on wood as I say this, but Delta be damned. We should be able to continue on with the show regardless. Yeah. Um, so that's my section of the announcement. And then Scotty, do you want to take the other section? Yeah. So we're going to pick up again on, I guess, what did we say? The 16th? Or the week of the 16th. So I think the episode will drop on the 19th. And then I think we were going to take two weeks off because I actually have some family coming into town. And then we are going to officially move once we get into September. We're going to officially move to every other week. So, yeah. And we're just doing that because, you know, like we had mentioned a few episodes ago when we started this podcast, um, it was the middle of the pandemic and yeah. we kind of didn't have any other creative or professional requirements. Mm -hmm. And now that is starting to shift a little bit, but we really love doing this podcast and we hope you guys uh, are continuing to love listening to it. We want to keep doing it. We just have to alter the schedule a little bit to make yeah. sure that we're not giving you shitty episodes <laughs> right? <laughs> or that Scotty isn't having to stay up for 24 hours straight, like recording and then immediately going into editing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just giving, it's just to give ourselves a little bit more breathing room. So yeah. with no, I guess, further ado, I should just dive into my story. Do it. Okay, so I'm going to start with a cold open. Okay. Ooh, okay. I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a narrative and tell me if it sounds familiar. So a few, a few decades ago, there was a family in the Washington, D.C. suburbs that started to experience strange paranormal happenings in their home. Okay. Um, and then the child of the family suddenly started 
exhibiting very strange behaviors, including cursing, speaking in Latin, levitating, the bed vibrating, etc., mm-hmm. etc. So the family calls in a priest to perform an exorcism. Okay. Does that sound familiar to you? It does indeed. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I think everyone's thinking, well, that sure sounds like The Exorcist, right? It does. Well, I'm going to tell you the true story that inspired The Exorcist. So this Ooh. is The Exorcism of Roland Doe. Ooh, uh, yeah. creepy. Okay. So my sources are Wikipedia, an article from Strange Magazine. I couldn't find a date for it. I think it's kind of an oldish article, but it is issue 20. Uh, it's called Feeling Devilish? Try the Exorcist. That's cheeky <laughs> yeah. for an article about exorcism. Okay. Oh, there's another cheeky one on here too. And then an article from the Washington Post called Priest Freeze Mount Rainier Boy Reported Held in Devil's Grip. This is uh, written by Bill Brinkley, and it's from August 20th, 1949. Mm, And then from the book, William Peter Blatty on the Exorcist from novel to screen written by William Peter Blatty. That's from 1974. Okay. And an article from the Skeptical Inquirer by Joe Nickel, January 2001, called Exorcism Driving Out the Nonsense. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I, again, I don't know if an exorcism should be referred to as nonsense, Well, uh, but maybe that's just for us Catholics. He, he sure does. He oh, sure does. Okay. Well, <laughs> and I'll talk about that. <laughs> um, okay. But first, let me just start talking about the book and the movie The Exorcist and its author, William Peter Blatty. Okay. So William Peter Blatty was born January 7th, 1928 in New York City. He was the youngest child of Lebanese Catholic immigrants, and his mother was actually the niece of a bishop. Um, Mm -hmm. So he grew up in a very devout, devout Catholic family. Mm -hmm. Um, His parents did split up when he was a toddler. So he was raised by his mother. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) A little bit of Catholic judgment being hurled. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so he was raised by his mother and they grew up very poor. She made ends meet selling homemade jelly on the street. Oh, Um, yeah. And they moved around a lot because she couldn't pay rent often. Uh, I think I think it said they moved like 28 times like throughout his childhood. There's something about like having to sell homemade jelly on the street that is just well like speaks to a level of poverty that is is different. And I mean, keep in mind, this would have been in the 1930s. So this is like in the heart of the Great Depression. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he did like William himself was super, super smart. Mm -hmm. So he on scholarship was actually able to attend a private Jesuit school. which he graduated from in 1946. He then went on to earn a bachelor's degree in English in 1950 from Georgetown University, which he also attended on scholarship. And anyone who's familiar with The Exorcist knows the importance of Mm -hmm. the city of Georgetown to that story. Mm -hmm. It was while he was in Georgetown that he heard the story of Roland Doe. After he graduated, he went on to get a master's degree and then enlisted in the Air Force. And then after the Air Force, he he always kind of wanted to be a writer, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, but like many people, it was one of those things where it's like, well, that's not a job. That's not a career that people do. Right. So he ended up working in public relations. He moved to Los Angeles and he worked in PR at Loyola University and then at the University of Southern California. But while he was doing those PR jobs, this was fascinating to me. This was something I knew before, but I always forget because it, you think about, you know, the guy who wrote The Exorcist. You yeah. Know, it's like, that's heavy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he started as a comedy writer. 
Really? Yeah. He he started off kind of in the early 1960s. He was publishing humorous articles and books. And then he actually appeared as a contestant on the Groucho Marx quiz show, your, You Bet Your Life. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which Interesting. That, that was new to me. I, I had Which never was heard the... that before. Sorry, Wh- <laughs> which is the Marx brother that never talked? That what was that Harpo? I think is that it's Harpo. Harpo? I th- Groucho I- was the one with the glasses and the mustache. Right. Harpo was the one that had like the blonde curly hair. I think so. And the beep, 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 horn. Right. Yeah. And then there was Zeppo, who was Zeppo, like the straight man. Right. I was there think- another? Was there a fourth? I mean, I am not an expert on the Groucho Marx okay, <laughs> or the I'm Marx Brothers. Utterly derailing your story <laughs> no, in this my, episode no, into I'm, an episode about the Marx Brothers. No, literally, I'm like, should I do an episode on the Marx Brothers? Because now I'm kind of fascinated because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's actually not something I know a whole lot about. Yeah, there's an episode of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer where Cordelia calls Xander the Zeppo. She's like, you're the Zeppo because he's the he's the straight man. Like, he doesn't have any sense. powers. He doesn't. He's not special in any way. Um, right, because like Groucho was like the wisecracking dude, you know, mm-hmm. with the cigar and the rah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, kind Harpo of had the whole silent had bit. the horn. Yeah, so it yeah. makes sense that you need a straight man. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. That's actually an uh, interesting question. <laughs> interesting. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so William Peter Blatty was a contestant on his game show, which also did not know that Groucho Marx had a game show. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was You Bet Your Life. Mm-hmm. And Blatty actually won. He won $10,000, which allowed him to quit his job at the universities and become a writer full time. But like I said, he was publishing these like humorous novels, like sort of light comedy, fluffy comedy books. Interesting. And they were very well received by critics. A critic at the New York Times, a guy named Marvin Levin, said, nobody can write funnier lines than William Peter Blatty. And if you've ever read The Exorcist, it's like, really? Because <laughs> I don't yeah, remember one funny thing in that entire goddamn book. <laughs> yeah. What a like what a what a turn. What right. a what a deviance. Yeah. But yeah, the critics loved his books, but they just didn't sell very well. So, you know, he was kind of like scraping by, but the books did bring him to the attention of a famous director. uh, Some of you guys might know a guy named Blake Edwards, who is primarily known for comedy and is really Mm -hmm. primarily known for the guy who was behind the Pink Panther films. Oh, okay. Peter Sellers. Okay. So William Peter Blatty's first screenplay actually was writing the Pink Panther film A Shot in the Dark in 1964. Okay. His project right before The Exorcist was a Julie Andrews and Rock Hudson musical called Darling Lily. That was from 1970. What a weird career. Okay. Right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's it's like, it's a hard 180 when yeah. he goes into The Exorcist. But the reason why he ended up writing that book is he had read this story when he was in college about the exorcism of Roland Doe. Now, Roland Doe, I should say, is not his real name. I think it's probably pretty obvious. It's yeah. Um, the family is still anonymous to this day. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's probably people out there. I, I was looking all through the internet. I wasn't going to like name Out them M. on the show, but I was just like, has anyone like published the name of the family? I couldn't find it. So, I mean, it may be out there, but I couldn't find it. So we're going to go with Roland Doe. I've also seen him called Ronald Doe. Okay. Blatty had heard this story. He had read a newspaper article, the one in the Washington Post that I'm going to cite here, written by Bill Brinkley. It's priest frees Mount Rainier boy reported held in devil's grip. 
Mm. Um, this is from August 20th, 1949. I think Vladdy was like a junior in college. He read this article and it just, because he was raised devout Catholic. And I think he had kind of moved away from it mm -hmm. for a while. I'm sure you can speak to this, you know, raised Catholic. You've always got a little bit of Catholic still in you. you know? Yeah. And it's an interesting thing too, because like Catholicism, in my opinion, let me state clearly here that I am not any type of Catholic expert, but Catholicism has oddly enough, like a fair amount of kind of like superstition. It's mm -hmm. a very like ritualistic version of religion. Like mm -hmm. there is a lot of stuff in there. It's not just going to church and, right. you know, uh, believing in Jesus. Yeah. Sorry, Christians. Just <laughs> yeah. It's not like some sort of suburban, I don't know. I'm just going to throw it like Methodist or something where it's like, you go to church and drink grape juice and, you know, right. Have no, a it is it's like, yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of ritual. There's a lot of ceremony to it. There's right. um, to me, Catholicism feels very ancient for mm -hmm. better or for worse. Also understand for anybody out there, this is not me giving, you know, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a recommendation, but not, you're um, not trying to convert people. <laughs> right. And I'm also not like, I'm super in support of Catholicism. The Catholic church has a lot of skeletons in the closet, mm -hmm. but regardless, Catholicism feels very old world, very ancient. All of the other Christian well, it's uh, at least, sects I mean, feel very modern. Yeah. Like Catholicism and uh, this is the little bit of this is like a little bit of a sidebar, but let's go with uh -huh. it. Yeah. Um, like Catholicism and the Eastern Orthodox churches mm -hmm. are, are at least about 1500 years old, I think. Yeah. And the only reason really, again, not an expert, this is just <laughs> my right. understanding is the reason that there's a split in those churches was because of the split of the Roman Empire. So like, right. like they are ancient. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I do think I, you know, as he got into his early in middle adulthood, he had kind of, I don't think he ever stopped being Catholic, but he had kind of moved on, you know, sort of like a lot of people was kind of like a cafeteria Catholic, I think. Right. But as he got older, you know, the story that he had read about this exorcism just stuck in his brain. Mm. Um, so I'm going to read, this is from the article. I just find the tone of this fascinating. So okay. keep in mind, this is from August 20th, 1949. Okay. This is the article by Bill Brinkley in the Washington Post. It says, in what is perhaps one of the most remarkable experience of its kind in recent religious history, a 14-year-old Mount Rainier boy has been freed by a Catholic priest of possession by the devil. Only after between 20 and 30 performances of the ancient ritual of exorcism here and in St. Louis was the devil finally cast out of the boy, it was said. In all except the last of these, the boy broke into a violent tantrum of screaming, cursing, and voicing of Latin phrases, a language he had never studied, whenever the priest reached the climactic point of the ritual. And then uh, it quotes the phrase, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I cast thee, the devil, out. Mm. In complete devotion to his task, the priest stayed with the boy over a period of two months, during which he said he personally witnessed such manifestations as the bed in which the boy was sleeping suddenly moving across the room. And it goes on and on and on. It's a long article. What was kind of amazing to me about this, mm -hmm. this I guess this is just, I don't know, 1940s, is how, like, it's just taking the story at face value. Yeah. Like, it's yeah, there's like, no skepticism in it, really. It's yeah. like, well, yep, this happened. It's like, Dateline, DC, boy, possessed by devil. And it's yeah. not like... 
the weekly world news here. Right. <laughs> this is the Washington yeah. Post. Um, <laughs> so I, that just kind of blew my I just don't think you would see that today. Right. Well, our, our friends from last week's episode, the McLeans, were probably like, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds good to me. Also, we have a cursed diamond. So <laughs> that, yeah, that tracks. Yeah, it totally tracks. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what Wayne Peter Blatty himself had to say. This is from his book. The article impressed me how coolly understated it is. I wasn't just impressed. I was excited for here at last in this city in my time was tangible evidence of transcendence. Mm -hmm. If there were demons, there were angels and probably a God and a life everlasting. And thus it occurred to me long afterward when I'd started my career as a writer that this case of possession, which had joyfully haunted my hopes in the years since 1949, was a worthwhile subject for a novel. Ooh, okay. And one thing that I should say that I have read is that around, I think, the time of The Exorcist, Blatty did kind of, he had this like religious reawakening and he became, again, a devout Catholic. And I think he was throughout the rest of his life. So just for all the people who are like, the exorcist is satanic, and people were like picketing the the theater when it was released and stuff. It's like the guy was like super Catholic. Like it's a very Catholic story. Well, I know, but like as a former Catholic, elapsed Catholic, that is hilarious to me because I mean, for so many things, but it is like one, I know that there are a lot of people from other religions, other denominations who do sort of see Catholicism as like, not really a real religion. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty pagan and like, what is the deal with Mary and the nuns and like, what yeah, is all yeah, that yeah. about? And it's actually like, you know, because Catholicism is so steeped in the father, the son, the Holy ghost, they're like, oh, mm, but really it's supposed to be about Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And also too, just like, yeah, just so clearly, a, a, I don't know if it's an American thing or a human thing, but to be like, I haven't like seen or read this thing at all. I just know that there's a demon, there's demons mm -hmm. and an exorcism involved, therefore satanic. Well, and it was very controversial because, you know, it wasn't like a nice view of Catholicism. It's the, yeah. you know, let Jesus fuck you scene. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the book and the movie are super in your face but when i say it, it's yeah. a super catholic story what's interesting when you read this book that he wrote i think it was the year after the movie came out mm -hmm. um and, and a lot of the book is just kind of about the process of writing the novel and mm -hmm. his kind of relationship with william freakin who did the movie spoiler alert not a great relationship he talks early on like at the stage where he starts kind of ruminating on like how am i gonna approach the subject matter now as an adult as the early 1970s how am i gonna approach this and right. he has this whole passage where he's talking about like you know he looked into all the psychological explanations of like maybe it was schizophrenia maybe all of these things and he kind of came to a place of like if i'm gonna write this story i need to write it with conviction that this yeah. actually happened yeah so like when you read the exorcist the movie sort of elides it just a little bit the movie i think because william freakin it was not catholic mm. and was a little a little condescending to the material so there's that like hint like very subtle in the movie that like maybe this isn't real maybe it is in their minds or whatever right maybe it's a mass hysteria or something right like that's not in the book i've read the book like the book is like no the devil possessed reagan mcneil the priests come to perform an exorcism like it's very much it takes it head on you right know? so like i said you know this story had stuck in his mind for years but he he never wrote it because he i mean he's sitting there being like i'm a comedy writer 
Like right. no, no one wants this from me. I write Pink Panther movies and right. you know, Rock Hudson, Julie Andrews musicals and stuff. But he happened to be at a dinner party one night and he met with the editorial director of Bantam Books, a guy named Mark Jaffe. And this Mark Jaffe asked him, he's like, what are you working on? And so kind of nervously, Blatty is like, well, I've been sort of thinking about this story about this exorcism and kind of like gives him i think the rundown of the true story and he's like at this point he didn't even really have like his story worked out he's just like this is kind of the subject i'm interested in and he sort of thought the guy would like okay you know smile and nod and go talk yeah. to somebody else but he was like um yeah you should write that my company should publish that Ooh, okay um and blatty was like well okay um but basically <laughs> it was like i don't want to commit to this unless like there's an advance because he's still thinking like i don't know if this is commercial Right. And so Jaffe was like, well, send us an outline. Now, he doesn't say this in the book, but I'm like, well, of course the guy was interested in this because this is like a year or two after Rosemary's Baby. Okay. I was wondering. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry. I just, I was leaning down to get something. Nobody could see kind of moving around (laughs) i was leaning out to get something and like popped back up like a little gopher but i was wondering like where this was in relation to rosemary's yeah so the book rosemary's baby i want to say i could be wrong but it's like was like 65 66 Mm -hmm. maybe Uh and then the movie i think was 1968 or 69 okay um and then you know so rosemary's baby came out huge smash hit Right. This was also, you know, a year or so after the Manson family. So there's fascination with cults and Satan worshipers. I think it's also in the backdrop of just like, this is the late 60s, early 70s. It's anti-Vietnam protests. It's the counterculture. And there, it was this like brewing, like worry. Stevie King talks about this a little bit in Dance Mm -hmm. Macabre. You know, he's basically like, the exorcist is every parent's worst nightmare about what the counterculture is doing to its children Mm. at that time. Because all of a sudden the kids are like foul mouthed with like dirty hair. And, you know, so it's like, you know there's a little bit of moral panic happening yeah and i think it is interesting i you know we've touched on it on this podcast but it this is only about not quite 10 years before the kickoff of the satanic panic right so you know rosemary's baby it's brewing yeah it's like it's brewing exactly and blatty just kind of stumbled onto this story kind of at the right time Mm. so he starts researching this story And he actually found another case uh, that was similar. So he says in his book, he says, I found a case that was relatively recent, 1928, in Erling, Iowa. There was only one account of the event, a printed pamphlet written by a monk. The pamphlet carried photographs of the principles. Paranormal phenomena were cited. One in particular gave me pause. It was stated that the victim, a 40-year-old woman, would repeatedly and forcefully fly up from her bed as if hurled like a dart, head first, at a point above the bedroom door where she would hang suspended by her forehead as if tightly glued to the spot. An extraordinary image. I instinctively felt that it could not have been invented. Wow. So again, it's just like, he's, he's a believer. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He's writing this story, not from a like, Ooh, you know, pot boiler bestseller perspective. Right. It's like, right. he's, he's working some stuff out for himself, you know, mm-hmm. but he really was fascinated by this Roland Doe story that he had read in 1949, 1950. So he starts trying to find more and more out about it. And it's just, he's going through this labyrinth of like talking to people and people not wanting to talk to him or being like, well, I wasn't part of it, but you talk to this person. And then that person's like, well, I wasn't part of it. So then talk to the, so he's just like not really getting anywhere with the research. It's all mm-hmm. kind of just eluding him. But then he finally manages to get the name of 
one of the priests. Because again, most of the story used pseudonyms. Okay. So no one was really identified in the news articles, but he does manage to get a hold of one of the priests and he writes him a letter. And the priest revealed that there was a diary that was kept that essentially recorded all the daily events of mm. this exorcism. So then Blatty asked, he said, can I see the diary? And the priest said, no. So this is his letter to William Peter Blatty. He says, my hesitancy in giving you the details of the case of possession is due to two facts. First, Blank, who delegated me as the exorcist, instructed me not to publicize the case. I have been faithful to his instructions. Secondly, it would be most embarrassing and possibly painfully disturbing to the young man should he be connected in any way with a book detailing events that took place in his life some years ago. Mm. Since a case of possession is a very rare occurrence, he would certainly connect his own experience with any such account. Okay. But he goes on to say, it's a long letter, and sort of towards the end of the letter, he says, I can assure you of one thing. The case in which I was involved was the real thing. I had no doubt about it then, and I have no doubts about it now. Mm, okay. Now, Blatty does say that he eventually did manage to read the, this diary. And so he, like, Blatty knew who the boy's real name was. He knew where he lived. <gasps> he did okay. find out all that information, but he stuck to his sort of part of the bargain. He never outed anybody. He never published any of those details. Okay. He did say that the Washington Post story is largely accurate, except for the implication that the boy knew Latin. Okay. He said that the boy was actually only able to parrot phrases that the priest had like spoken to him. So the priest okay. would say some incantation in Latin and the boy would parrot it back to him. Okay. Now, the Strange Magazine article, it's interesting because a lot of it's basically, like I said, I couldn't find a date for it, but I think it's from like the early 2000s. Okay. And the author of that article, who also I couldn't find the name of the author, basically tried to kind of retrace William Peter Blatty's steps mm -hmm. to see if he could find any of this information. He also heard about a, quote, diary, but he said the Blatty got the diary from a Georgetown faculty member named Father Eugene B. Gallagher, who was one of Blatty's former teachers. Gallagher got the diary from Roland's psychiatrist. Okay. The diary is 16 pages, and according to Strange Magazine, it reads like a document written as a guide for future exorcisms. So this is, like, fascinating to me. And if you've seen the movie, there's this weird intersection that happens here. And I think it's because it's at Georgetown, which, if I'm not mistaken, is a Jesuit university. Mm -hmm. So there's this intersection that happened between science and ritual, science and faith. So, like, the psychiatrist psychiatrists were also priests and things right, like that. Right, 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 right. The character of Father Karras in the movie and in the book is a psychiatrist and a priest. Okay. So it's just, it's interesting that like, you know, the modern versus the ancient right. kind of thing is, yeah. that was also taken from truth. So I'll get more in, into that diary. Now, it wasn't clear to me from reading all these different accounts if the diary that William Peter Blatty is talking about is the same diary that the Strange Magazine article is saying he got from this Eugene be Gallagher, this priest. Okay. My guess is it's the same diary, but I'm not like, I, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Okay. So just a little bit more in the book. It came out in 1971. It was an immediate bestseller, became kind of a phenomenon. It is to this date, August 2nd or whatever, August 3rd, whatever the fuck it is, <laughs> uh, 2021, it sold about 13 million copies. So mm, okay. yeah, it of course did lead to the 1973 film adaptation which is where most people know The Exorcist from. Yep. It was directed by William Friedkin, starred Linda Blair, Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, and Jason Miller. The original critical reception of the movie was mixed, but the movie was, it was like a huge, huge hit. Okay. 
So and critics I, were like, eh, about it. Yeah, Comment like some of like, them were calling it this. trash, you know, like, and, and you got to keep in mind The Exorcist, like if you watch it, even today, it's fairly shocking. It's not a tame film, right? even by 2021 standards. Right. This came out in 1973, which is just, I think, something like six years or less, five, six years after the end of the Hayes production. Code. Yep. So, you know, showing a little girl masturbating with a crucifix, yelling, let Jesus fuck you. Like, this yeah. is not something people were used to, which is yeah. also why I think people were flocking to see the movie. Right. You know, this is the same era that the movie Deep Throat, the porno film, became a blockbuster with, like, suburban couples and stuff like it was almost being screened as like a legit quote-unquote legit film right because That's, you I, know people are like all of a sudden you have this freedom to go see these things which you just didn't right, have before right right yeah, that's interesting. Okay. I don't think I ever realized quite how big of a smash The Exorcist was. It grossed $441.3 million on a $12 million budget. That now, is surprising. $441.3 million in 1973. That yeah. makes it about, if you adjust it for inflation, it makes it about $2.5 billion. Wow. And that makes The Exorcist the ninth most successful film of all time. Wow. So, and it did. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, how do you know how it compares to other, like, quote-unquote, scary movies? Like, other horror films? I mean, it's the most financially successful horror movie, if you adjust okay. it for inflation. Okay. I think, you know, probably the next on the list would be the Stephen King It movies. Okay. Because uh -huh. I think those together were close to or maybe over a billion dollars. Okay. I don't think anything else has came, come close. Okay. I know that the most, for a long time, the most successful movie of all time in terms of budget to box office ratio right was the Blair Witch Project <laughs> because I mean it cost like 25 cents you know yeah. to make that movie and it made a hundred <laughs> some million dollars so the ratio is huge but it still didn't approach the exorcist right okay and Halloween is another one that's like that you know okay cost you know Halloween cost maybe a buck 50 you know right for that for the the um William Shatner mask and the can right. of spray paint <laughs> exactly <laughs> Yeah. But the exorcist, I mean, there's no there's no horror movie that like comes close to the exorcist. And it is okay. like an ongoing franchise. Like they're putting out a new Exorcist TV show that's coming out. Or really? no, no, not a, there was an Exorcist TV show. There's a new Exorcist movie coming out that I think is supposed to be a prequel to the original movie. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and it's gonna be directed by David Gordon Green, who directed like the most recent Halloween remake. Okay. Um, so it's like continues to go. Like it's, right. now for my money, I just got to throw a little plug in here. I don't love the exorcist. Actually. I don't really, I don't love the movie. I like it. I mean, okay. there's parts of it that are brilliant. I think I do find it a little snotty. Like <laughs> it's a little, it's a little condescending to the subject matter. Okay. I think it's like trying so hard to be like quote unquote realistic uh -huh. that I don't know. It just it loses a little something for me. In my opinion, the best Exorcist film was actually the one that was actually directed by William Peter Blatty. Oh, I didn't know there was one. Okay. Yeah. Exorcist 3 okay. came out in, I want to say, 1990. Um, okay. William Peter Blatty did not have a great experience working with William Friedkin on the original. And then they put out this abomination of a sequel called Exorcist 2 Heretic, which okay. like, like, don't, don't watch it. Like, okay. There's no, cause it's, it's like bad movie in a like, not even fun way, just like really boring and stupid way. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is is it the exorcist movie where somebody sees like the nurse go by the corridor and then the that's exorcist three okay okay cool, yeah cool cool, cool. yeah and in fact i was gonna say exorcist three's got this great shot where you see a nurse something bad happens to a nurse but it's this long it's this like super wide shot where nothing mm-hmm. happens for like a minute and then the scary thing happens right what I love about Exorcist 3 is it's a lot weirder than The Exorcist. Mm. It's got a great tour de force performance by Brad Dourif. Okay. As, as a possibly demonically possessed serial killer. Okay. And so my friend, the master, devised this pretty little scheme as a way of getting back, of creating a stumbling block, a scandal. A horror to the eyes of all men who seek faith using the body of this saintly priest as an instrument. You know my work. But the main thing is the torment of your friend, Father Karras, as he watches while I rip and cut and mutilate the innocent. His friends and again and again and on and on. He is inside with us. He will never get away. His pain won't end. Oh, gracious me. Was I raving? Um, it's got George C. Scott just being like real George C. Scott about everything. Okay. Like, but it's just got this like Baroque atmospheric, almost art house style to it that I like it for me, that's the one I enjoy the most. Mm. And it's actually based on the novel Legion, which was William Peter Blatty's novel sequel to The Exorcist. Oh, okay. So let's get into the actual story of Roland Doe. Yes, let's do it. Okay. So the story started in 1949. Uh, when a bunch of newspaper articles appeared, including the one that Blatty read, mm-hmm. detailing anonymous reports of an alleged demonic possession and exorcism in Cottage City, Maryland. So Cottage City is real close to this town, Mount Rainier, which mm-hmm. is why everyone keeps referring to this exorcism as having taken place in Mount Rainier. It's like, okay. look like it's like 10 minutes away or something. Okay. And then they're both sort of 20 minutes away from Washington, D.C. So they're essentially D.C. suburbs. Right. It was claimed in some of the reports that a total of 48 people witnessed the exorcism. Now, it's like the thing about all of these reports is like they're all anonymous. Yeah. As you talked about when you're talking about the Hope Diamond curse, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we need to take even stories in the Washington Post and New York Times with a bit of a grain of salt. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there was still, I think, an element of like hyping it up so right and i i was able to find and read a couple of the different stories that are like archived on the internet and like there's a lot of contradictory stuff and okay. you know so you have to kind of like tease through it to see what you believe and what you don't believe but mm-hmm. general like the general outline of the story is that roland was an only child he basically didn't have any friends so he sort of just dependent on the adults in his house to be his playmates. And I think it was his parents and then his aunt Harriet, Mm -hmm. who was a spiritualist. Harriet introduced Roland to a Ouija board when he was, I think, about 10 years old. Bad news. Bad news. And then aunt Harriet died. Now, Roland was like super close to her. 
So this was Mm -hmm. a traumatic experience for him. Right after Aunt Harriet died is when the family began experiencing strange noises and poltergeist activity all around their home, including like flower vases would fly across the room or would just float, like levitate. Mm -mm. Furniture Mm -mm. would move by itself. No. This always happened when Roland was around. Mm. Now, if you've ever read anything about poltergeist stories, it's very common in poltergeist stories that there's a teenager close by usually in the stories it's a teenage girl and so this is where there's all sorts of theories the poltergeist activity is actually related to telekinesis which Mm -hmm. awakens in young women at the time of their first period Mm -hmm. etc so if you've ever seen or read the book carrie like that's what carrie is kind of drawing from so there's some similarities here with the roland doe story but it's interesting he's a boy which is like usually what you're not you're you know you're associating these poltergeist stories with young girls so okay now the family were not catholic they're actually devout lutherans mm. so they went to their lutheran pastor a guy named miles schulze schulze was already interested in like paranormal phenomena and parapsychology and stuff so mm-hmm. he hears the story and he's like "Ooh, interesting so mm-hmm. he's he basically arranges to spend a night in the family home to observe the boy and see what okay. happens while he was there schulze saw firsthand he saw objects levitating he said he saw furniture appearing by itself. He also saw scratches appear on Roland's body. Oh, wow. And at that point, the Lutheran minister is like, I can't handle this. You guys need to call in the Catholics. <laughs> Listen, I'm just saying when real shit talk. gets real, you're not going to be able to rely on a Lutheran or a Methodist. You're going to need a Catholic. Yeah. I'm so not a Presbyterian. <laughs> Sorry, all you Presbyterian listeners out there. <laughs> I love how I'm in like in the same breath going like, I do not condone the Catholic Church. And then I'm like, but when shit hits the fan, who are you calling? Not Ghostbusters, Catholic priests. <laughs> <laughs> this is very much, very much aligns with most Catholics. Like we are allowed to talk shit about the Catholic yeah. Church, but you can't. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. So at this point, the family calls in the Catholics. They took Roland to Georgetown University Hospital where he was evaluated. And this is where it sounds like, you know, he's being evaluated by psychiatrists, but the psychiatrists are also priests or they're affiliated with priests. So this is where things start to move more into this like spiritual realm. Now, this is where the diary that the Strange Magazine article sort of pops up. Okay. The diary is called Case Study by Catholic Priests, and it supplies background information on Roland Doe, born June 1st, 1935, which would have made him 13 years old when this all started. Right. He was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Edwin Doe. Now, these are obvious pseudonyms. Right. So I'm just going to go through some of the entries, and, and it's 16 pages, so I'm not going to, like, read so everything. So settle in, because settle Scotty's... In, get a cup of hot cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm reading every last word. Page one. Right. Okay. <laughs> Page one. January 15th, 1949. Oh, uh, one thing I should say, this is all from that Strange Magazine article. Okay. I'm not sure if these are quotes from the diary itself, if this is the writer of that article kind of summarizing the entries. Okay. So I'm quoting something. It's either the diary or the Strange Magazine article. Okay. Um, It says, January 15th, 1949, a dripping noise was heard in his grandmother's bedroom by the boy and his grandmother. I'm sorry, a dripping? A dripping noise. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if that's going to get you, just like. Shit, okay. (laughs) Hold on to your butts, people. 
Okay. Um, a picture of Christ on the wall started shaking and scratching noises were heard under the floorboards. From the night on, scratching was heard every night from 7 p.m. until midnight. This continued for 10 consecutive days. So this is the start of everything. I think this okay. is even before the aunt died. Okay. So January 26, 1949, Aunt Tilly. So remember, mm-hmm. she was called Aunt Harriet in the newspaper articles. Right. But in the diary, she's being called Aunt Tilly. Okay. Aunt Tilly, who had a deep interest in spiritualism and had introduced Roland to the Ouija board, died of multiple sclerosis at the age of 54. Dang. Mrs. Doe suspected there may have been some connection between her death and the seemingly strange events that continued to take place. At one point during the manifestations, Mrs. Doe asked, if you are Tilly, knock three times. Waves of air began striking the grandmother, Mrs. Doe, and Roland, and three knocks were heard on the floor. Mm-mm. February 17th, 1949. This Miles Schulze visit. So remember, he's the Lutheran minister. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is when he comes to stay the night and observe Roland. It says the Reverend reportedly heard scratching noises and witnessed the following bed vibrations, a chair in which Roland was sitting on, tipped over, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Over time, there are more and more manifestations. And then, like I said, these scratches are appearing on Roland's body. They start forming words like hell, Christ. So at that point, the family consulted the St. James Catholic Church in Mount Rainier. So this is when Schulze is like, you got to bring in the Catholics. Like, Okay, this, yeah. This is not, this is not a problem. It's above for my the pay Lutherans. grade. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they go talk to this Father Albert Hughes at St. James Catholic Church in Mount Rainier. And he suggested, you know, they use these blessed candles, holy water, special prayers, etc. So they're not moving right into exorcism. Okay. The Strange Magazine article says that this is the point at which where the narrative gets kind of confusing, like the chronology gets confusing, but there are just these continuing manifestations. For instance, at one point, Roland's mother is using the blessed candles, and while she's using the blessed candles, a comb flies across the room and extinguishes the candles. A comb? A comb, yeah. Okay. Um, and another instance, Roland was actually at school and they had to remove him from school because he's in his classroom and his desk started moving. Like, what the hell do you like? I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's just like you're like, what, like a 13 year old boy and you're at school mm-hmm. and your desk starts moving. Like, how do you come back from that? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, sorry <laughs> about that. Here's like a pizza party so that you forget that my desk started moving of its own volition. Right. <laughs> and if you guys like when I read that part, that reminded me of the movie Hereditary, which came out a couple years ago, because there's a scene sort of similar to that in Hereditary. Which movie is that? It's with Tony Collette. It's oh, a horror yeah, movie. yeah, yeah. I have not seen it. That's why I don't know it. It's it's a very upsetting horror movie. <laughs> so I wouldn't That's necessarily why I have not recommend watched it. it. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was a good movie, but I think you would just be mad at me if you watched it. So, Okay, yeah. In another instance, Mrs. Doe was sprinkling holy water throughout the house. When she put the bottle back on the shelf, it flew across the room but didn't break. Another time, she lighted a candle near Roland's bed. And I think she was sitting on the bed with Roland and she lit this candle. The bed started like shooting back and forth through the room what? with the two of them on it. No! So... At this point, they're like, we're going to like make him a Catholic. We're going to have him baptized into the church. Okay. So they attempted to have him baptized, but he responded with rage so much so that they had to bring him to the Georgetown hospital for a three-day stay. So essentially institutionalized him for three days. After that, they just packed Roland off and went to Normandy, Missouri, where they had family. This was the first 
week of March ish, 1949. With Roland. They with weren't Roland. just like, bye, have fun. Yeah, have fun <laughs> with our possessed kid as we <laughs> peace out to Missouri. <laughs> I mean, you don't fucking know. It's completely yeah. possible. Yeah, no, they t- they packed him up. They took him back to Missouri. In Missouri, their relatives also claim that they witnessed brandings appearing all over his skin. So these words are just like popping up on his skin. <sighs> So here's a few later entries. March 9th, 1949, Father Raymond J. Bishop of St. Louis University was called in and witnessed the scratching on the boy's body and the motion of the mattress. So again, we're having the bed moving. On March 11th, 1949, Father Bodern, who is described as being the pastor of St. Francis Xavier Church, I think also of St. Louis, if I'm not mistaken, arrived on the scene. After Roland retired to bed at 11 p.m., Father Bodern read the Novena Prayer of St. Francis Xavier, blessed the boy with a relic, which was a piece of bone from the forearm of St. Francis Xavier, and then fixed a relic-encrusted crucifix under the boy's pillow. The relatives left. Father Bodern and Father Bishop left. Soon afterward, a loud noise was heard in Roland's room, and five relatives rushed to the scene. They reportedly found that a large bookcase had moved about, a bench had been turned over, and the crucifix had been moved to the edge of the bed. The shaking of Roland's mattress came to a halt only after the relatives yelled, Aunt Tilly, stop. No (laughs) one can see my face. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I just glanced up, and you're like, look terrified. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I just Aunt Tilly, like, I mean, just rude. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. just rude to torment this poor boy that you had allegedly had a good relationship with. Well, I think the theory, if you go with the idea, like if you take it at face value that it's a demonic possession. Right. Is that it's not actually Aunt Tilly. Is that it initially came in the form of Aunt Tilly to like sort of get Roland's guard down, but that it's actually a demon. Right. Okay. Yes. And if you go back to the book and the movie, this is the whole Captain Howdy thing. Um, where it starts off as Reagan's imaginary friend, Captain Howdy. Right. Okay. 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 March 16th, 1949, Archbishop Mm -hmm. Joseph E. Ritter finally gave Father Bodern the permission to begin the formal rite of exorcism. So that night, accompanied by Father Bishop and a Jesuit scholastic who was later revealed to be Walter Halloran, Father Bodern began reciting the ritual prayers of exorcism. Mm. Which go, I cast thee out, thou unclean spirit, along with the least encroachment of the wicked enemy and every phantom and diabolical legion. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, depart and vanish from this creature of God. So, I mean, it's not quite as catchy as, you know, let the power of Christ compel you, but right. it's the same idea. Right. <laughs> Just a little less of an earworm, probably. Right. Just needed a better editor. Right. (laughs) So more rituals were performed throughout March and early April of 1949, during which time Roland was being moved back and forth between his aunt's home in Normandy, a nearby rectory, and the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. Markings kept popping up all over his body words were popping up all over his body and they're popping up in like hard to reach places so it's right it's not like he was just like scratching them into himself right and i'll I'll get to that when i talk about the skeptical inquirer article a little bit okay he's also starts experiencing these outbursts where he's cursing vomiting urinating and Mm. using the latin phrases now again remember blatty's disclaimer that it's really he's parroting these latin phrases right back to the priests this i thought was fucked up at one point this okay sorry (laughs) 
at one point he managed to like dig into his mattress and during okay. one of these exorcism rituals he snapped off the bed spring and stabbed the priest with it like in Shit. The yeah so not fucking around here yeah during another rite, Roland was instructed into the Catholic Church. So at this point, they're like, actually, like, we're, we're going to bring you into the Catholic Church. And they gave him his first Holy Communion. While that was happening, a six-inch portrait of the devil with its hands held above its head, webs stretching from its hands, and hordes protruding from its head, appeared as like a welt on his calf. What? Just like, raised out of his calf. Mm-mm. And then finally, on April 18th, 1949, this is from the Strange article, Strange Magazine mm-hmm. article. As the nighttime ritual continued, Father Bodern forced Roland to wear a chain of medals and hold a crucifix in his hands. Roland's demeanor changed and he calmly asked questions about the meanings of certain Latin prayers. Bodern continued the ritual, demanding to know who the demon was and when he would depart. Roland responded with a tantrum and screamed that he was one of the fallen angels. Bodern kept reciting until 11 p.m. when Roland interrupted. In a new masculine voice, Roland said, Satan, Satan, I am Saint Michael. I command you, Satan and other evil spirits, to leave this body in the name of Dominus immediately. Now, now, now. So this is Roland shouting this. Okay. Then he had one last spasm, fell quiet. (sighs) He is gone, Roland pronounced, later telling Bodern he had a vision of Saint Michael holding a flaming sword. Twelve days later, he left Missouri and returned to Maryland. And that was the end of the exorcism and the possession. So what do we think is going on here? I don't know. I mean, well, I have, I of course have so many questions. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I know it's all, you know, like anonymous and everything, but like, did Roland go on to live a normal life after this? Was he okay after this? So I read a couple places where I think in the priest's letter, he told Blatty, he said, Roland's doing good. I think he was like at that point married with his own kids. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, but, but again, you know, it's totally anonymous. And like I said, I couldn't find anything on the real person. He's never given like his Geraldo interview or anything. Right. So, like, <laughs> which, Dang, that would yeah, be, that'd that be a get. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, I think he ended up being fine. And there's no like money coming from this. Doesn't sound like it. Now, again, everyone being anonymous, like you don't, don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but okay. there, it doesn't seem like there was like a bid for publicity. Now you could say, well, this was like someone was tipping off these newspapers. Right. And, you know, this was like, you know, the Catholic Church wanting publicity or whatever. Well, it wasn't the Catholic Church, though, that they don't think was the source. They actually think the original source for the newspaper articles was that Miles Schulze, who was the Lutheran minister. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't quite track either. Okay. Yeah, then I, I don't know. I don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, so like possibilities for what was going on. Okay. An actual bona fide demonic possession. Mm hmm. Childhood schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. Tourette syndrome. Oh, okay. Some sort of seizure disorder. Mm. Also, like, particularly when you get into, like, the Skeptical Inquirer article, there's lots of speculating that he was just, like, a disturbed asshole kid who just wanted attention, so was throwing tantrums for attention, and because he wanted to get out of school. Okay. A lot of people have questioned, like, the details of the case, like the scratchings, markings, moving furniture, this devil portrait on his calf. A lot of these accounts are based on hearsay, so it's, like, hard to say who originally saw what mm. happened or did okay. they come in after the fact and all of a sudden he's got a scratch on his leg that looks like the devil like okay a lot of that's not real clear 
so it's possible he was creating those markings himself because like they never looked at his fingernails to see if like you know there's blood or skin under his own but you said the portrait of the devil was what now because it wasn't just like a little stick figure with horns right it had like web fingers and like yeah it was like a portrait of the devil I mean, okay, let's even account for that Roland has that um, skin condition where like any amount of pressure or friction or whatever will create a red welt. That's mm-hmm. still thick. You know what I mean? It's not something right. that you can get super detailed with. So like the words maybe, but like a portrait of the devil that is detailed enough that you can tell that he has webbed fingers. Right. I have that's, a hard time believing well, that that's him like scratching it into himself. Well, and, and it depends on the account you read too, because okay. some of the accounts sort of say like the priests were in the room and actually just watched it appear on its own mm-hmm. and other accounts, but you know, who knows who's saying this and whether this is after the fact or what are saying that the priest like left the room, came back and the scrap and the portrait was there. So still that's too much detail. Okay. I'm I'm skeptical about the skepticism. Well, yeah, that's what I want to get to now. And again, this is me, as we've talked about on the show before I am agnostic, um, Mm -hmm. which to me is very different than atheist. Mm -hmm. And this kind of gets to the whole, what we said, I don't remember what episode we were talking about this on, but we were basically saying like how atheists, like hardcore atheists are kind of just as annoying as like hardcore fundamentalist Christians. Yes. Yep. So the Skeptical Inquirer article, this Joe Nickel, and I read the article. It was like one of those web archive articles that it's like a little image that I had to blow up and try to read. So Mm -hmm. it was hard to read and I wasn't sure if it was the entire article, but it's supposedly like debunking the story. And this is the article that says the title is Exorcism, Driving Out the Nonsense. So (laughs) we know know where Joe Nickel is coming from. Yeah. Way to to do like, you know, um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) what's sort of looking for? God damn it. impartial like journalism yeah. but okay exactly not burying the lead in right <laughs> this is bullshit by yeah. Joe. <laughs> and yeah. so this is where i'm like i'm not sure if i read the entire article because this is from wikipedia where they quote the article they say joe nickel said a determined youth probably even without a wall mirror could easily have managed such a feat if it actually occurred. Although the scratched messages proliferated, they never again appeared on difficult to reach portion of the boy's anatomy. So what he's saying is that he could have used like a mirror to scratch like on his back, you know? But the thing is, he could have. That's not debunking anything. Like that's where I'm like getting into like the annoying atheist thing. Like the tone of this article is very much like, well, my evidence is that People are self-evidently stupid. And so people are stupid. That means I'm right. Right. That seemed to me to be his argument. Because he's not actually talking much, at least in the portion that I was able to find and read, he's not actually talking much about this specific case. He's talking about like, well, there's this other story about this other girl who faked an exorcism. And so since she did it, well, that clearly means Roland was doing it. Okay. I'm like, no, that doesn't clearly. It doesn't mean actually. Yeah. Clearly mean anything. It means the, the other girl was faking it. If right. that was proved that she was faking it. And I think I know the story he's talking about, but that's, that's a different story. Yeah. So do I believe this? I don't know. Like if I'm putting this on the believability scale. Yeah. I'm not going to put it above a five. Okay. But it's probably not below a four or a three to me. Like, do I think it was the devil? I don't know. I've like, a, as an agnostic, I don't know that I believe in the devil, but do I think that there was maybe something going on? Right. Here? Yeah. 
there's a lot of accounts of it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's stuff that it's like, okay, we can sit there and say, okay, well, he, you know, scratched the messages into himself and all that stuff. But then there's also like stories of things levitating Mm -hmm. and, you know, stuff like that, that it's like, how do you explain that? Right. And like, what makes this different to me, like where I would put this, like, I'm not going to go above probably a five. Mm -hmm. on the believability scale but i do put it above like the haunting you know the amityville horror right right because in that if you remember in the amityville story there's a lot of questions about the uh i'm forgetting their name at this point but the the, The defeos no not the defeos it's the people that moved in after oh right 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 the the, the movie's actually about them right 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 they were the sources for the novel like it seems fairly likely that that was a hoax and that they were in it for the money well didn't it come out that they were like there was the whole thing about like them and the lawyer getting together and sharing a bottle of wine and they were like what if we did this thing yeah and like i said you know okay that's the lawyer and he's mad at them so maybe he's making up a story true but there's plenty of evidence that points to like they were at the very least enjoying the attention right you know right right right. and they did make money on it yeah like it's hard for me to see that anyone made money and in fact this family the doe family Mm -hmm. to this day have wanted to remain anonymous the priests have wanted to remain anonymous all the names i'm giving you is like other people connecting dots later the only person who maybe was alerting the press was this miles schulze Mm -hmm. who was the lutheran minister um but it's not clear to me that he actually made any money on it i think he was but he did have this interest in paranormal activity and whatnot so like you could point to him if you're a skeptic and be like oh he ginned it up but it's like there's too many moving parts to me for it to be clearly a hope yeah same now it could be mental illness but like that doesn't like let's go through that list again you know childhood schizophrenia okay well that could be the behavior issues right screaming the believing you're a fallen angel all of that right combine that with tourette syndrome and seizures you know that's the cursing and the and the the spasms and things like that right doesn't explain the markings on his body doesn't Mm -hmm. explain the the inanimate objects moving yeah so it also could it have been a mass hysteria sure yeah but to me this one has always been a big question mark yeah, I think so. There's not like it. There's, in my opinion, <laughs> that no one asked for. Um, <laughs> well, but it is there's your just, podcast, so. <laughs> yeah, actually. So you know, um, but there's yeah, like you said, there's too many moving parts and stuff that it's like. Well, you can explain. None of these theories explain everything. Exactly. And there's too many. There's allegedly too many witnesses mm-hmm. to excuse some of the stuff away. And again, I'm coming back to like the levitating, right. the, you know, the bottles being thrown and not breaking and, and that kind of stuff that it's like, how, how does schizophrenia Tourette's seizure disorders explain that stuff? It doesn't. And that's the thing that comes down to when, with these poltergeist cases, you know, mm-hmm. some of them have been hoaxed, mm-hmm. but like generally they're not that hard to disprove if it's a hoax right some of the more genuine ones are like genuinely unexplainable yeah and like so where i say like i don't know if it was a demonic possession or it could have been more akin to what we think of other poltergeist stories Mm -hmm. it could have been being caused by roland but it could have been more of a telekinetic thing happening along with some sort of delusions you know but it just seems to me that there's a decent chance that 
whether it's demonic possession or something else, there's something paranormal happening here. Yeah. And that along with, like you said, the number of people involved, all the moving parts, that's what puts this up closer to me to Mothman, which like I've said, I put pretty high on my believability scale. Mm -hmm. You always laugh when I say that. (laughs) He's a smart man. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But like, again, with Mothman, I don't know that it's actually Mothman or an alien or whatever, but it's just like a lot of people saw something. Well, and I think that that's the thing is that like, like I, you know, going back to this thing of like atheists being just as annoying as, as super devout religious folks is that Mm -hmm. either way you were asking me to have faith in something that I cannot without a doubt prove the existence or lack of existence of, I cannot without a doubt prove the existence of God. I cannot without a doubt disprove the existence of God. Exactly. And there is, and again, there is plenty of stuff in this world that is strange and unusual, and there isn't a quick and easy explanation for that we have been like, okay, yeah, but that works. So I right. think to have the sort of audacity in either direction to say, I know everything and that can't exist within the realm of everything that I know is just, yeah, it just is, it, it that doesn't track to me. Right. And I don't think people are necessarily evidently stupid, you know, like I'm not going into this just assuming that these are stupid people or liars, you know, right? they might be, but I don't know that. Right. And I'm not going to smugly sit here and just be like, well, it's obviously fake. Therefore, the evidence that it's fake is that it's obviously fake. Right. And again, yeah. And again, like, you know, the fact that almost everybody who's been involved with it has remained anonymous, that there wasn't some clear financial gain for it. You know, it's not like Roland, you know, came out and he was like, Hey, I'm the, I'm the kid who got possessed. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a traveling tent show now. And you guys can all come and see me. Like, you know, there's nothing there that is of any gain. It was like, no, this happened. And then we quietly went back to our lives. Right. I don't know. That's a big question mark for me. Yeah. So like I said, I'm putting it at a five. I'm going to, I'm going to put it at a five on the believability scale. And that is the story of the exorcism of Roland Doe. Fantastic. Ooh, very creepy. And yeah, I'd love to hear what, what any of our listeners think about that. Yeah. Okay. So my story begins with a man named Edward Lawrence Doheny. He was born in Wisconsin, a little small town in Wisconsin in like the 1850s, I believe. And he was sort of a natural outdoorsman. Um, Doheny eventually would go on to become a gold prospector and eventually, more importantly, an oil man. Okay. In 1892, Doheny and his buddy Charles A. Canfield were the first to strike oil in Los Angeles. Mm. They also discovered big oil deposits in Mexico. So between the oil that they found in LA and Mexico, Doheny and Canfield became the largest producers of oil in the world. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Doheny was actually the inspiration for Daniel Day Lewis's character in There Will Be Blood. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Doheny married a woman named Carrie Wilkins, and the two had two children Eileen, who passed away at the age of seven, and Edward Ned Lawrence Doheny Jr. Carrie later died, some sources say by suicide. Mm. 
but others just say that she died. And Doheny would go on to marry Estelle Betzold, who became a loving and caring stepmother to Ned. Okay. Um, like they had, they had a really wonderful relationship and she just like really stepped into a mother role. Somewhere in the 1910s, Doheny purchased over 400 acres of land at the foothills of the Santa Monica Mountains in Beverly Hills, California. Okay. When Ned, the son, married Lucy Smith, his father, Edward, gifted them like a, I saw 12.5, I saw 19, I saw different, but gifted them like a big chunk of that land. Mm, okay. Later on, the Doheny's hired architect Gordon Kaufman, who did, I know he did the LA Times building and he also Mm. did some other big thing in the LA area, but they hired Gordon Kaufman to build this like palatial manor that included a 55 room, 46,000 square foot mansion. Wow. Mm -hmm. The mansion had its own bowling alley. It had secret passageways. The grounds had stables, kennels, tennis courts, its own fire station, a Mm. gatehouse, a swimming pool, a pavilion, a greenhouse. There were even like brooks and an 80 foot waterfall that you could turn on with the flip of a switch. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All told, the estate cost over three to four million at that time and took over three years to build. And what was the time period? This is in like the 1920s. Okay. If built today, that estate would cost 50 to 60 million dollars. Wow. To build. Wow. To build. The house, I think, had a staff of 10 to 15, and the grounds had a staff of 20. Ned, Lucy, and their five children moved. Moved into the home now dubbed Greystone Mansion because of the grayish tint of the limestone in September of 1928. Just five months later, on February 16th, 1929, tragedy would strike. This is the story of the murders at Greystone Mansion. Mm, okay, let's nice. do it. Nice. Okay, sources for this are Wikipedia, an article from the Los Angeles Times entitled uh, The Sensational Society Killings That Rocked LA, Still a Mystery Nine Years Later, a video on YouTube from a woman named Kendall Ray. She did a whole series on like Hollywood murders and it was actually sponsored by the TNT series. What is it? I am the night. The series. Oh, about yeah, the, yeah, yeah. 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 She did a whole series on that. So that video is titled the murder mystery of Greystone mansion curbed Los Angeles, obviously money, murder, and mystery. One afternoon inside Beverly Hills, beautifully creepy Greystone mansion by Tess Barker, Greystonemansion.org, the Los Angeles public library. If these walls could talk an article from the lineup, titled Two Bodies in the Bedroom, The Greystone Mansion Murder Mystery by Elizabeth Tilstra, and an article from KCET, which from what I understand is like, is like a local PBS in California. Mm, okay. That article was We Shall Never Know, Murder, Money, and the Enduring Mystery of Greystone Mansion by Hadley Mears. Okay. So like I mentioned, Doheny Sr. made his money in oil. He discovered the oil by the La Brea tar pits Mm. and that discovery sort of drove the LA boom. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. By the early 1920s, Doheny was one of the richest men in the world. He actually had more money than Rockefeller. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like guy's fortune was no joke. Um, (laughs) It is my experience <laughs> that you don't get that rich without doing some shady shit. Uh, of course. So <laughs> let's if get you're in, like let's... an oil man, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So let's get into the shady shit. We're going to talk quickly about the teapot dome scandal. Yes. Okay. 
Okay. I'm going to be real honest here. I understand the impact of this scandal, but in terms of scandals, it's kind of boring. I mean, in the post-Trump world, aren't all scandals kind of boring? Well, I think that's the thing is that like, I think of scandal and I think of like naked bodies. I think of like, you know, doing blow off somebody's ass. Like I think of stuff like that. You know what I mean? This was like shady dealings. And so I get it. I get that it's a scandal. In falling down the rabbit hole of the Greystone Mansion, the second I got to the teapot dome scandal, I was like, because yeah. uh, it's I mean, dry. I will say like, and you're probably going to get into it, but like what I like the best about the teapot dome scandal is just, it's just part of the like long list of reasons why Warren Harding was just an idiot. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. The we're, dumbest. We'll, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to get to that. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So a little bit of history on the teapot dome scandal mm-hmm. in the early 1900s, the U S Navy's main source of fuel oil was converting the fuel from coal. Mm. President Taft was like, um, yo, I want to be sure that the Navy always has all of the fuel it needs. So he designated a ton of oil producing areas as Naval oil reserves. Mm. Yeah. Okay. In 19, 19- 21, President Warren G. Harding issued an executive order that transferred control of some oil fields, including the Teapot Dome oil field in Wyoming, from the Navy to the Department of the Interior. Okay. This is where it's like... Louise. Okay. So in 1922, Interior Secretary Albert Bacon Fall, who mm-hmm. BT dubs had been a Republican senator from the state of New Mexico. Oh, I think I think I knew that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Harding was like, Do you want to be interior secretary? And Fall was like, you know what? I sure do. So <laughs> in 1922, Fall leased the oil production rights to private companies without any competitive bidding. Mm-hmm. Again, government contract there should have been bidding that right. happened and fall was just like do you want this like do you want yeah, this place? It's, it's like real yeah. kickbacky kind of yeah so technically the doing of this was legal under the mineral leasing act of 1920 mm. but the lease terms were super favorable towards the oil companies and the deal secretly made fall a rich man yeah Okay. In 1922, Doheny Sr. sent his son, Ned, and Ned's friend. Okay. I saw a whole bunch of shit. <laughs> like, I saw that that this guy was Ned's war buddy, that he was his personal assistant, that he was his secretary, that he was his chauffeur, that he was, like, just his friend, whatever. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, sent Ned and Ned's friend, Hugh Plunkett, to Washington. When they arrived in Washington, they handed Fall $100,000 and secured a lease on the Naval Oil Reserve worth about a hundred million dollars at the time a hundred million dollars at the time wow so we're like we're talking billions billions yeah yeah we're talking billions of dollars so they give fall that hundred thousand dollars and they secure the rights the lease for the naval oil reserve for the doheny family Mm -hmm. or corporation again you don't get rich without doing some some shady shit again to clarify the bribes for the leases that went to doheny were illegal not the leases themselves Mm -hmm. so does that make sense like if if fall had not received any money in exchange and had just been like hey do you want the oil rights for this but the whole system because without the competitive bidding the whole system is just rife for corruption precisely as was harding's entire 
presidency, which which I'll get to in a sec. (laughs) Goes back to like him being the dumbest. Yes. So Fall tried to keep everything like super hush hush, Mm -hmm. but spent that money like it was going out of style. (laughs) And so people were like, they noticed that his standard of living sort of like shot up and they were like, um, you know, like nice car, like nice golden car bacon or whatever that like, they were like, what, like, what the hell is this? A lawyer by the name of Carl McGee, who hometown shout out would eventually go on to start the Albuquerque Tribune. Oh, okay. Yes. Was like, uh, yo fall, like what's up with the richie rich lifestyle and was like, Hey Senate, do you want to like take a look at this. Yeah. There's obviously something shady going on. Clearly that's a direct quote. And (laughs) that's when everything started to sort of like unravel An inquiry Mm -hmm. followed, but there was no evidence of wrongdoing by fall, but there was some like weird stuff that did happen. Like records kept disappearing. Mm -hmm. A Senator who was leading the investigation had his office ransacked. Mm. But again, they couldn't find anything to pin on Fall. So it was looking like he was going to go, you know, he was going to be deemed innocent Mm -hmm. until someone found that record, uh, found some type of record or evidence of that $100,000 that Doheny had sent via Ned and Hugh. Mm. And when they found that, they were like, okay, well, this breaks it like all wide open. And I think Fall tried to be like, no, it's a a loan that he gave me. So um, fall is also the dumbest. Fall is also a dum dum. Yeah. Yes. So the discovery of that quote unquote loan breaks the whole scandal open. Criminal and civil suits followed. The Supreme Court ruled that the oil leases were illegally obtained and the reserves got returned to the Navy. Right. Fall was found guilty of accepting bribes. Doheny was found guilty of paying them. And to add insult to injury, Doheny's corporation foreclosed on Fall's home, which was located in New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> because of quote unpaid loans that equaled the hundred thousand dollar bribe, so they right, were like, well, "We didn't get this, and now we get your home yeah, because you so suck." Fall just like he's getting kicked in the nuts from all sides at this point. Precisely, yeah, and he's just like, "Oh, I shouldn't have bought that gold car." Um, <laughs> Okay, so one last thing about the scandal, and this comes to what you were talking about. The scandal was sort of the nail in the coffin of the Harding presidency. Yeah. Harding's presidency in (laughs) and of itself is worthy of an episode because it is like, my God, it is a dumpster fire. And I don't say this to lessen anything that has happened to us in the last five years, but I feel like a lot of times we can go, oh my God, like this is the worst. Like Trump's administration has been the worst and there has never been. And this is unprecedented. And the truth is, is that it's not. Harding was a mess and it was, and his presidency was a mess because he hung out with shady ass people. Yeah. I think like what I've always heard about Harding that maybe separates him from more recent events is that he himself was like, just kind of naive and stupid about who he trusted and that it's not clear how like much actual malice there was in him but like that's giving him a lot of credit i think it's giving him a lot of credit i mean he was there's a quote from harding that says it's something along the lines of i don't have to worry about my enemies it's my friends that i have to keep an eye on Mm -hmm. and so that to me is that i'm like you knew you were hanging out with shady people right like right. you knew you were involving yourself. Well, with he was just hiring like his drinking buddies and stuff and putting yeah. them in cabinet positions. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like 100%. So again, like I said, this is sort of like the final nail in the coffin of his Mm -hmm. sort of sullied presidency. The teapot dome scandal, just BT dubs was far from the only corrupt deal of Harding's presidency. (laughs) They had a whole fucking house dedicated to it. I think it's called the little greenhouse on K street Mm -hmm. where like they all went to, you know, be corrupt Um, (laughs) prior to Watergate. And again, like I say Watergate because all of the articles are from like, you know, like 2015 and earlier. Mm -hmm. So in all of these, it was like prior to Watergate, the Teapot Dome scandal was regarded as the worst scandal in the US. Mm -hmm. It was considered the high watermark of cabinet corruption. Mm -hmm. um, Again, until the Trump administration was like, hold my beer. (laughs) Okay, so that's happening throughout the 1920s. Um, So we're going to fast forward now to 1929. The Doheny clan is still dealing with the fallout of the Teapot Dome scandal. And apparently Ned and Hugh had been called to testify in the upcoming bribery trials of Fall and Doheny Sr. Ned had been assured immunity. Hugh had not. Mm, okay. okay. During this time. And Hugh, just to remind me, Hugh was like his friend who we don't know exactly. Chauffeur, yeah. Secretary, war buddy, like. Yes. <laughs> all of the above, none of the above. Okay. All of the above. Yeah. Basically like entourage, right? Right. Um, so during this time, like when this is starting to go on, those in the Doheny circle start saying that Hugh is losing it. Okay. He had previously been considered like steady and even tempered, but word starts to get out that Hugh is unraveling. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Some folks say that it's like, oh, he's having trouble with his teeth. Mm. They say that there's an addiction to sleeping pills, that there's trouble in his marriage, and then just other sort of like unknown problems. Mm-hmm. While all of this is going on, the Doheny's are moving into Greystone, which apparently Hugh had overseen the construction of because Ned had been dealing with all of the stuff and like going to DC and doing all of this stuff. Like I said, Hugh oversaw the construction of it and he even signed checks for contractors in Ned's name. I Mm. only say that to state like that's how close they were. Yeah. You know, basically was a Ned surrogate when Ned was away. So the Doheny's move into the house in the fall of 28 and that Christmas Eve, Hugh is said to have suffered a complete and total nervous breakdown and he gets put into the care of family doctor Ernest C. Fishbaugh. Okay. According to Dr. Fishbaugh, on the day of February 16th, 1929, he, Ned, and Lucy all go to Hugh's apartment and they beg him to take a stay in a sanitarium. Okay. There are people who think that they pushed really hard for this because they thought that if Hugh was in a sanitarium, he would be exempt from testifying. Yeah. I was wondering if that was a factor. It would Mm -hmm. make sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Regardless of the reasons for it, whether it was, you know, the sort of underhanded impetus or just because they were worried about their friend, Hugh refused. Mm -hmm. Dr. Fishboss said, quote, he simply sat there almost shaking at times, hands clenched, jaw set. He said he would come out of it all right. I could see it was no use to push him further. And so I left. Now, I want to be clear that what I like what I'm going to say in a moment is basically solely the word of Lucy and Dr. Fishbaugh. 
The story okay. comes entirely from their mouths. Lucy said that in the early evening of the 16th, her and Ned went back to Hugh's apartment to again ask Hugh to consider getting some help. Lucy said that Ned said some, quote, impulsive remarks and that mm. Hugh got upset. Ned and Lucy left. They went to the theater and they returned home to Greystone. Okay. As they were getting ready for bed, they got a call from Hugh saying that he was at the gatehouse and he wanted to come up to talk. Lucy was like, you know, like maybe you should go home and we'll talk about this later. Yeah. And Hugh was like, cool, I'm coming up. <laughs> Hugh arrives at the front door and he lets himself in with his own key that he had mm. to the house. So again, super close to them. Super close. Ned finds Hugh in a guest bedroom in the East Wing. And that was actually the room where Hugh, like frequently when he would spend the night and he would sleep over, that it was the room that Hugh used. Mm -hmm. The two sat down, start having a few drinks. They start talking. Lucy was somewhere else in mm -hmm. this house. I'm going to remind you that it is a 46,000 square foot house. Yeah. Okay. It's a castle, basically. It's a castle. Let's take a moment for a word from Dr. Fishbaugh. He says, quote, I received a call at the Hollywood Playhouse from my maid at 10.30 p.m. and was told to go to the Doheny home immediately. Upon my arrival there, one of the watchmen, whose name I do not know, let me in the house. As I entered, Mrs. Doheny was standing in the middle hallway approximately eight feet back from the door and greeted me. She said her husband was in a guest room on the first floor to the left of the hall leading from the front entrance. Both Mrs. Doheny and I started down the hall side by side. A door which partitions the hall was slightly ajar, and I saw Plunkett walking toward it. You stay out of here, he shouted at me and slammed the door shut. Mm. I then heard a shot. You go back, I told Mrs. Doheny, and she returned to the living room, which was about 75 feet away from the guest room. Okay. I pushed the door open and saw Plunkett lying on his face opposite the door to the bedroom where I later found Mr. Doheny. Mm. Plunkett, to the best of my recollection, was fully clothed. The door to the bedroom was open, and when I looked in, I saw Mr. Doheny lying on his back, a chair overturned between him and the bed. So, Scotty, I'm going to ask you, does anything about this statement just, like, seem weird? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, like, I'm having a hard time kind of putting it into words, but, like, there's just something that feels like doesn't... Look, I'm having a hard time tracking, mm -hmm. like, like, he's told to stay out, but he goes in, like... Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, I don't know. There's something that seems convenient or something about it. Okay. Here's a couple of things that stand out to me. Okay. One, there is a door that leads to that wing yeah. where the bedroom was. So they walk in, they're in the foyer of the house and there is a door between them and the hallway that leads to the bedroom that right, Ned and right. Hugh were in. Okay. Fishboss says that that door to the hallway is ajar, but he right. somehow sees Plunkett coming towards yeah. the door and then says, you know, he's like, don't come in here. And he slams the door. Yeah. Okay. So that's a little weird because how did you see him coming through him if the door was only ajar? And he's right, on okay. the other side of the door. Okay. So that's weird to me. Also, this is an interesting addition to me, which is the part where uh, Fishboss says Plunkett, to the best of my recollection, was fully clothed. Yeah, that was weird. Like, why say for that? one, why say it? And then like, to the best of your recollection, that's like a weird, almost yeah. like legalese type. <laughs> Like, right. And just as like a little bit of extra info in here, I 
don't think the Hollywood Playhouse exists anymore, but when it did, it was about five miles from Greystone Mansion. Okay. Okay. So that's going to come up in a little bit. After Lucy and Dr. Fishbaugh discover the bodies of Ned and Hugh, they've both been shot in the head, by the way, <laughs> Lucy and the doctor call Lucy's brothers. Mm then District Attorney Fitz, and finally the Beverly Hills police to tell them Hugh Plunkett shot Ned Doheny and then turned the gun on himself. Okay. Edward Doheny, Ned's father, is awakened at his home at Chester Place and he rushes to the scene. Mm -hmm. As law enforcement arrive and begin to process the scene, they start to notice some weird stuff. Leslie White, who was a forensic investigator processing the scene, noticed a smoldering cigarette in Hugh's fingertips as he photographed the scene. When I first saw this, I was like, well, what's what's weird about that? But the thing is, is that the cigarette had burnt down and had actually like burnt mm, Hugh's okay. fingers. White considers this weird because he's like, okay, if we're going with the story that we've heard, which is that Hugh shot Ned in like a mm -hmm. fit of madness. Yeah. Why would he like, was he, he was smoking a cigarette during this? and he wouldn't put the cigarette down to then turn mm -hmm. the gun on himself. To me, my question is, usually the hand that you smoke with would also be the hand that you shot yourself with. Right, right, right. So, so like, he like, didn't put it out. He didn't, like, drop the cigarette. Yeah, there's, like, a lot of little things that are just kind of not adding up. Yeah. The gun was found under Plunkett's body, so under Hugh's body, and it was suspiciously warm, I mean, to the point where White was like, was it like it, it's it's warm that it like it's warm enough that I feel like it's been warmed in the oven. Mm, OK, so like warm, you know, yeah, what I mean? so like very recently used. Yeah. There's also a matter of the Doheny circles stories. Law enforcement said that the story sounded rehearsed like they, mm. you know, they start interviewing Dr. Fishbaugh, Lucy, then they start going through like the staff and mm. they're like they're like suspiciously kind of the same. Yeah. And yeah, and it sounds like they've all been rehearsed. Additionally, Dr. Fishbaugh's story had like several inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. I saw in one spot that he was like, we walked in and Ned was still alive, but yeah. then like, but then walked in and that he was dead and all sorts of stuff. And that's like a big consistency. That's a huge inconsistency. I also want to say for all of this other stuff, remember that Lucy heard the first shot a little bit before 1030, because that's when Dr. Fishbaugh got called away from the Hollywood Playhouse. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then it's about five miles away, even like, you know, whatever he, you know, drove slowly or whatever the hell he probably got there fairly soon. Law enforcement didn't get called and show up until about 2 AM. So we're talking uh, like three hours later. Yeah. And she's calling her brothers and like she's calling her brothers. The gun, is, the gun is still warm. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Additionally, gunpowder was found on the wound on Ned, indicating that he had been fired at close range. Yeah. No gunpowder was found on Hugh. That, okay, that's kind of a telltale. Hugh was also shot in the back of the head because mm. he fell forward and landed on his face. And that's kind of a hard place to shoot yourself right. in the head. Right. Just for, for the viewers or for the <laughs> listeners benefit. Amelia was just miming that action. <laughs> and like, I can put like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not impossible, but. But why would you? Why would you? Why, again, why would you? Yeah. Why would you be like, I'm going to shoot myself in the back of the head with, 
again, holding a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> like there's just a lot of questions. Yeah. So like law enforcement comes and they're like, okay, like I said, mm-hmm. Doheny senior was already there. I'm going to remind you that he's still like one of the richest men in the country yeah. at this point. And as has been shown, not above, you know, greasing wheels and taking matters into his own hand. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. What follows in the direct aftermath of the murders is a media storm. And Ned in the media gets cast as a hero who had died, quote, the finest kind of death, trying to help his friend who was like having a hard go of it. Okay. Yeah, some like rich daddy spin, I think. Mm-hmm. Just a few days later, the police officially declare the case a murder suicide, just as Lucy and Dr. Fishbaugh had described it with yeah. Hugh murdering Ned and then turning the gun on himself. Right. Leslie White, who was that forensic investigator, along with a lot of other detectives are like, uh, like, mm-hmm. We don't feel good about this, but the case gets declared closed. Yeah. LA police is like, nope, this is done. Sorry, this is the story. This is what happened. Done so. Mm-hmm. Ned Doheny and Hugh Plunkett are buried just 100 feet away from each other in the Forest Lawn Cemetery. Mm. Forest Lawn is a secular cemetery. Ned and the entire Doheny clan were devout Catholics. Mm. I'm like starting, I'm going to let you you finish, but mm-hmm. not to be all Kanye on you, but like <laughs> that, like I'm starting to connect some dots here, I think. Right. So. Do you want to talk about in terms of like the burying and the cemetery, do you want to talk about why that raises some flags for you? Well, I mean, there are certain uh, sins that from what I understand, again, mm-hmm. not a Catholic, not mm-hmm. a expert on Catholicism, but there are mm-hmm. a few particular sins that are mortal sins that make it where you are not allowed to be buried on consecrated ground. Suicide being one of them, yep. for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some others that I don't want to spoil where I think you're going. So Okay, okay. <laughs> Lucy Doheny sent a huge floral arrangement to Plunkett's funeral, mm-hmm. and two of her brothers served as pallbearers for the man who allegedly killed her husband. Yeah, that's strange okay it's weird now it's completely possible that lucy was like look i knew hugh i knew that he was not in his right mind this was a tragedy all around and she's a forgiving person and she's a forgiving person and she she recognizes again that like hugh was not in a good place and blah 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 right we'll see (laughs) um the media storm about the demise of a member of one of the most like well-to-do families in the country was over in just three days Mm. It like disappeared from the newspapers after three days. Mm, Okay. A reporter at the Los Angeles Times wrapped up the whole saga as follows, quote, what transpired in the bedroom of that long rambling mansion in its woodland setting halfway up the side of the Beverly Hills mountainside may never be known. Both Doheny and Plunkett are dead. Mm. So... Let's talk like, theories. Dunzo. We're done <laughs> with this story. Yeah, yeah. Like bum, 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 bum. Stick right. a fork in it. Off to the presses. Done. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk theories. At the very least, to me, from looking at all of this stuff, it seems like the deaths did not go exactly as the Doheny camp would have, like, had everyone believe. Right. I think that seems very clear. Right. So right off the bat, 
we've got a possibility that maybe Ned actually killed Hugh in order to keep him from testifying. Yeah, that would be like the first thing you would think. But right. I have questions about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The second theory, some sources say that Lucy remarried almost a year to the day that Ned had died. So it's like, that's weird. But there's also a ton of other sources that say that she remarried in 1932, which is three years after the deaths at Greystone. So, yeah. so that doesn't really seem... Like super likely. The third theory, and this is one that pops up a lot, and it popped up a lot at the time, was that Ned and Hugh were actually much closer than just very good friends. Okay, yeah. I mean, I thought you were going there. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, I didn't want to spoil where I thought you were. Thank you for not spoiling. (laughs) Several sources cite that even at the time of the deaths, rumors swirled about Ned and Hugh being lovers. Mm -hmm. Um, While there are theories that the murder-suicide was like maybe a lover's quarrel that had just gone terribly wrong, there are others that wonder if maybe, perhaps, Lucy had stumbled upon Ned Mm -hmm. and Hugh. Um, An interesting thing to know is that Ned was found in a dressing gown in his underwear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll go back to Dr. Fishbaugh being like, as far as I can recall, Hugh was fully clothed yeah i mean that like that immediately set off red flags yeah so there are theories that wonder if maybe like lucy didn't you know stumble upon ned and hugh in a compromising position and that she actually killed the two men in a fit of rage Mm -hmm. lucy i was just gonna say like back to the the original theory Mm -hmm. i said i had questions about ned killing hugh to stop hugh from testifying but it's like ned had immunity already right so like what what does he gain from that well and i mean like you know the thing is is that anything that would have come out in these trials would have been stuff against doheny senior who had more money than god like yeah. they're not going to send him, you know, they're not going to send him to like the clank and be like, all right, well, you're on the chain gang. Like he's one of yeah, the he's not going to Alcatraz. Or no, he's probably just going to get some fines or something and being right. like, don't do that again. Yeah. So hmm. yeah, it just, that doesn't, it, it just, that doesn't quite make sense to me. Right. It's fishy. Yeah. It's fishy. Again, the stuff that to me makes me, you know, I mean, like, I, I, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to sully either of these men's names. <laughs> since they're not here to tell us what happened but i'm just saying i think that this story has some you know has some legs to it because okay here's the thing lucy hears some shots she doesn't call the police she doesn't go in to investigate she doesn't like you know call any of the 10 to 15 staff of the house to go did you guys hear that she calls dr fishbaugh pulls Mm -hmm. him out of a play Mm-hmm. He tink, 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 tinks over to the house. Let's say, I mean, at least, you know, how long does it take to drive five miles in Los Angeles in Beverly yeah. Hills? <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, you know, keeping in mind that traffic problems were probably not as bad back then as they are today. But like you said, it's five miles away. Yep. And then he's driving up into like Beverly Hills. Yeah. Like, I mean, you've driven up there with me. Those are like windy, narrow ass roads. Right. And again, so you're we're not talking, going 75. Right. We're again, we're talking 1929. It's uh, Some, like, cars are not going 75. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. like, <laughs> like up through the roads, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And during all this time, Hugh is doing what with Ned's body? Like just sitting in there, hanging out. He doesn't come out to be like, oh shit, I just killed Ned. Let me like leave or take care of the rest of the people in the house. Or Mm -hmm. he's just hanging out in there with Ned's body. 
Mm-hmm. And then additionally, that like Fishba gets there and still it's a few moments until they see Hugh and then Hugh finishes the job. Right. It's just a lot of questions for me. Right. And then that they don't call the police, that they call her brothers mm-hmm. and then the DA. Well, the, and that's then the, the cops calling the DA who they probably, you know, go to parties with and like give to his election campaigns or whatever like yeah. if you just call the cops the cops are going to come and treat it like a crime scene uh-huh. you call the da so the da can come in and kind of sit on the cops right and that's i think what it sounds like that's what it sounds like to me too and i believe i misspoke earlier when i said that it was like the police that were like cases closed i think it was actually the da who was like yeah. nope murder suicide terrible tragedy yeah it's political ally cronies like yeah mm. Okay, so Lucy did go on to remarry when she finally remarried in 1932, which is still only three years after this. Mm-hmm. She married a Lee M. Batson, who was a California financier, financier, fi- however you say that word. <laughs> Their wedding ceremony took place in the living room at Greystone. Mm. And she continued to live at Greystone with her new husband for another 20 some odd years. Mm. She raised her kids there, all that stuff in the home where her first husband and his best friend were killed. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. She sold the house in 1955. In 1965, the owner of the house of Greystone was like, I'm tired of this. This is a 46,000 square foot home. It seems like a lot of work. It's a lot. So I'm going to demolish it. But the city of Beverly Hills was like, whoa, 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 wait. And they purchased it. In 1976, Greystone was added to the National Register of Historic Places. And the house spent 20 years being leased to the American Film Institute. Mm, Okay. The home has been used in countless movies like i i could sit here for 20 minutes and list all of them but i'm just going to give you some of the highlights but it has been used in movies and tv shows like ghostbusters 2 death becomes her it was chilton academy in gilmore girls if any if we have any gilmore girls watchers out there yeah i mean i know like um while you're talking i'm going to look it up because i know i've heard of what is it greystone mm-hmm. mansion mm-hmm. greystone mansion the foyer and the staircase in particular are pretty famous so as you're doing that i'm going to continue listing so we ended with so again it was a private school in gilmore girls <laughs> yeah okay yeah uh-huh. I, t- I totally know mm-hmm. i've it's- seen this place it's been seen in Alias, Arrow, Austin Powers, and Goldmember, Batman and Robin, Entourage, Eraserhead, Falcon Crest, Flowers. Eraserhead. The- oh, mm-hmm. that Eraserhead makes sense because that was made at, um, that was an AFI film. They, David mm-hmm. Lynch was an AFI student when he made that. Flowers in the motherfucking attic, um, Indecent <laughs> well, Proposal, Knight Rider, MacGyver, Murder, She Wrote, National Treasure, Book of Secrets, mm. Rockstar, Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3, Rush Hour, Big Lebowski, The Bodyguard, The Prestige, The Social Network, The Witches of Eastwick, There Will oh, Be Blood. That is the Big Lebowski house. Mm-hmm. X-Men okay. and an episode of Friend of the Pod, The West Wing. Okay, I was going to ask, was this was this yep, Bartlett's yep. private school where his dad yells at him for no, Oh, no, 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 no. It was when they go to Los Angeles and they have the big oh, Hollywood party. And the that, guy's mad at them. Yep. It's yeah. Okay. 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 Yes. And also like 
countless music videos from like Van Halen, the Go-Go's, Elton John, Mariah Carey. The list of the things that the house has appeared on in the Wikipedia article is longer than the article itself. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. The grounds are now a public park and the mansion is used for special events, including performances of The Manor, which is a play based on the murders that happened there. I believe it's a progressive piece. So like you go from room to room. Okay. Road trip. (laughs) I don't understand why we haven't gone there. Well, I I mean, like I've heard of Greystone Mansion and I Mm -hmm. think I've even heard that there was like some murder story there. So when you said that that's what your story was about, I got excited because I didn't actually know the story. Yes. But like Apparent- if it's open to the public, fuck yeah. Yeah, I think I think you have to like schedule a sure. time there right now because COVID. But the curbed LA article, the author was talking about how basically they went in during oh, it was something that had to do with like an interior design or architectural publication where basically they gave a room to a bunch of like well-known interior decorators, I think. And they Mm. were like, have at it. And the, uh, the writer is talking about how, when they walk in a docent is like the room where the murder happened is down right to the left. Like they know they're (laughs) just like, go and see the room. Yeah. They're (laughs) like, just go and see the room. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. So all that stuff. Um, it is said that the mansion is haunted. Of course. But Oddly enough, not by the ghosts of Ned or Hugh. Instead, it is believed that Lucy haunts Greystone. Guilty Mm -hmm. conscience keeping Mm -hmm. her. Near the end of her life, Lucy, who was a hundred years old at this point, moved into a small 5,000 square foot home. (laughs) Just a tiny. Times the size of my house or something. Yeah, (laughs) just just a tiny home for one. It is said that she dressed up every day and sat in a wing backed chair as if she was waiting for someone to come get her Mm. there are some folks that say that maybe she was waiting for death and the judgment that would accompany it for her role in the events of that night long ago her understanding that she would pay in the afterlife for what she had done that evening back in 1929 may be why so many claim to have witnessed a ghost at greystone who leaves traces of Lucy's signature lilac perfume in mm. its wake. And that is the story of the murders at Greystone Mansion. I mean, all I'm going to say is like Lucy knew more than she was saying. Lucy hella knew more than she let on. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. not going to I'm not going to say that I think she caught them in flagranto or whatever and shot them. Like but there's more to that story. There's more to Ned and Hugh's relationship. Yep. And I don't think her or the doctor were being straight. So mm-hmm. make of that what you will. Make of that what you will. That's um, fascinating. And 100% I want to go there. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. On the list for our next trip out to LA, yeah. um, we will definitely post pictures <laughs> on social media sidebar what do you think about that i posted it on our social media yesterday but the (laughs) the thing that i found or on instagram sorry guys who are following us on facebook facebook and instagram are being really stupid and like not talking to each other which is why we're having issues posting from instagram to facebook but so i guess follow us on instagram (laughs) at the weirdest thing podcast uh but what did you think about the post that i did yesterday which was about they found it's the oldest prosthetic eye yeah 
in history. It was made from like animal fat and something. And tar? And tar. Yeah. No, like you said in your post, it's like, yeah, that's pretty fucking metal. Yeah, we should we should include here for anybody who hasn't seen the post that it was the owner of that prosthetic eye was a six foot tall priestess, mm-hmm. um, and her remains were found in Iran. Yeah, yeah it was pretty metal. That's pretty fucking metal. Yeah. Oh, it was painted gold as well. <laughs> I didn't even see that part. Yeah, it was painted. So she was just wandering around all six feet of her. With of, a fucking know. gold eye. Yeah. 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 Just being a priestess. Nice. Uh, so yeah, be sure to follow us on social media for fun stuff. <laughs> I guess actually follow us on Instagram. Yeah. Um, yeah I have not um, checked our email in months. <laughs> so Scotty. <laughs> I apologize if you guys have been emailing like I'm just real bad at that message through Instagram you will for sure see it (laughs) you could also give me the password for the Gmail and I could check it I mean I think I did give it to you way back when but I don't even know that I remember it I'll have to look at it oh my god okay (laughs) all right so while we so like like okay so we're actually not taking a break for me to like get my show up we're taking a break so that we can do some fucking admin housekeeping Um, since obviously that's necessary just reminder that we won't see you next week but we'll see you the week after again if you're in albuquerque come check out our show i don't think i said the name of it it's called sheets it's called sheets tango tangled like how to people again which Mm -hmm. is a long title uh we've just been calling it sheets internally more information is available on our website which is dukecityrep.com we're going to take a little break come back for an episode take another little break and then move to a uh, every other week format so that we can keep on loving you right with our weird stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we'll do the sign off. So everybody, please stay safe. Uh, Delta variant is not a joke. So stay nope. safe, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you in a little while. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.